All right, good morning. It's a pleasure to share this morning with you. We are in the second week of Epiphany, and we are in the midst of an Epiphany series entitled Jesus Revealed, in which we are looking at how the revelation of God through Jesus changes our world and our reality. Last week, we started with a traditional text of Epiphany, which was the text of the Magi and their visit to Jesus. And we saw that Jesus uh, revealed that God's heart is that all should know him and that we like the Magi can invite him into our lives, or we, like Herod, can push him out. This week, we turn our attention to a text that talks about Jesus' baptism and subsequent temptation in the wilderness. The text is found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, and you can turn in your Bibles there to page 784 if you're using one of our Bibles, or you can turn there in the Bible that you brought this morning. This morning, as we continue this series, we are going to see that the text that records Jesus's baptism is somewhat of a surprising text. Uh, Jesus launches onto the scene. This is the first time that we see Jesus in adulthood. The first time that we see Jesus say anything in the text. Uh, Up until this point, we, the narratives within the gospels, which are the stories of Jesus that record Jesus's life. uh, They're written by Matthew, who was one of his disciples, Mark, who was a close friend and associate of Peter's and who spent lots of time with Peter understanding Jesus's life. They were written by Luke, who was a doctor and who uh, made a careful examination by all the eyewitnesses of people who'd spent time with Jesus and by John, one of his disciples. I say all that to root these stories in a historical context, for Christianity is not just a good set of ideas, although it has good ideas, you know. It has a lot of ideas that a lot of religions share, right? If you uh, should treat others the way that you would like to be treated, that's a good idea, right? Don't lie, steal, rape, and murder. Like most of us in religious circles, no matter what religion you're a part of, share these ideals, yes? (laughs) But Christianity is not built on just ideas, even though I may say as a Christian pastor, they are superior ideas. Christianity is built on the fact that God became flesh in Jesus, that he came into history, that he died and rose from the dead. And it is not his ideas that swept the known world at that time uh, into a frenzy. It is the fact that he rose from the dead that has made Christianity so lasting. But when Jesus launches onto the scene in adulthood, the first thing that we learn from Jesus's life, the first two events are his baptism and his subsequent temptation. These texts, like the text we saw last week about the Magi, are going to teach us something about what God is revealing to us through Jesus. And they're also going to tell us or force us to make a decision as it pertains to how we will respond to who Jesus is. With that uh, introduction in mind, I want to read the text out loud to you. Uh, please put your eyeballs on it because that somehow makes me feel better. Okay, John chapter or Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and yet you come to me. Jesus replied, let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And so John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, 
this is my beloved son, or this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. At that, after that time, Jesus was t- led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to turn to bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written. Now, I just have to uh, editorialize for a moment. This is Satan quoting the Bible. (laughs) You know, isn't that ironic? How many times have you heard people try to use the Bible to do things to hurt other people? Yes, Satan himself tried this method, and the Bible has often throughout church history been used to hurt people. That originates with Satan. He will command his angels commanding you and they will lift lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said, verse 7, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down before me and worship. And Jesus answered, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. This text is incredibly beautiful. And if you, uh, as you look at it, have a hard time seeing that, I hope by the end you will see it a little closer. And if you see its beauty, I hope to make it more full. Um, This text teaches us some beautiful things, but the beautiful things that it teaches us, I want to highlight for a moment that they are startling and surprising. I want to put this, this baptismal, baptismal text of Jesus in its context with where it was, and especially with the person of John the Baptist. If you look at your text, I'm not going to read it to you, but John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, is the story, uh, the, the, the telling of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a kind of like hellfire and brimstone preacher in the wilderness. He was a man that wore camel hides and ate locusts and honey. He was this crazy eccentric, yes? And he was in the wilderness, and the text says that everybody from the city of Jerusalem would come out to see him. He was such a spectacle that the people were going out into the desolate and remote areas surrounding Jerusalem to see this crazy, itinerant, wilderness, eccentric preacher, right? Kind of like every uh, spring, some of us go down to Maple Tree Inn. It's in the middle of nowhere. There's no reason to go there except you want pancakes and sausage, right? And so the city people leave the city to go into the middle of nowhere. Why do they go? To see (laughs) The camel hide wearing freak who eats locusts and honey. And this guy has a message. And what is his message? (laughs) His message is crazy. I mean, I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying it's crazy. Here's his message. You can read it in your text, uh, but I will tell it to you. It starts in about verse 7. As all the people from the city are coming out, he sees that religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are also coming out to hear John the Baptist. They are probably coming to test what John the Baptist is saying because the religious people feel like they have to um, validate or invalidate what's going on, right? A big crowd has happened and a big crowd is going out. And so the religious people are want to go out there and say, is this okay or is it not okay? And what does John say to them? 
you brood of vipers. <laughs> Who warned you to come and flee from the wrath of God? Who warned you to come and flee from the wrath of God? For his judgment is near. The scythe is in God's hand, his winnowing fork. Yes, the winnowing fork is in his hand. And I baptize you with water, but when, G- <laughs> when the one that is greater than me comes, he will not baptize you with water. He will baptize you with fire. And he will separate the, the wheat from the chaff and he will burn the chaff with an unquenchable fire, right? This is a message of hellfire and brimstone and judgment, isn't it? John the Baptist was proclaiming and preparing the way for the Messiah, John the Baptist, he who was miraculously born to Elizabeth and Zechariah, who were far too old to have children, right? Elizabeth was uh, Mary's aunt. And Elizabeth and Mary have, uh, have kids at the same time, babies, born around the same time. It's, it would be like my, uh, my Aunt Jean having a child when I have a child. The same Aunt Jean who sa- served me honey-baked ham every holiday get-together, yes? It would be super weird. And the miraculously born prophetically foretold Isaiah chapter 40, John the Baptist. The one who Jesus will say of in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, that there is no one greater born among women to be ever born than John the Baptist. And yet, he or she who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than him because Jesus was always saying these like mysterious, provocative statements that totally reversed our understanding of what greatness looks like. And John the Baptist, waiting for the Messiah to come, doing his prophetically foretold role of preparing the way for Jesus, got the whole thing wrong. I know that's going to sound a little shocking to you guys, uh, but he got the whole thing wrong. Jesus comes into the waters of the Jordan River to associate with gentleness and humility with humanity. And John the Baptist is expecting him to like shoot fire bolts out of his hand and fry them with fire from his fingertips. Yes? Maybe you don't believe me on this, but yes? Yes? And here Jesus comes. He goes into the water and John horrified and appalled, says, what are you doing? Why are you here? The equivalent of this, and I, you know, I don't listen to a lot of classical music, but I'm sure some of, there, I'm sure there's some people in a room this size that like classical music. Um, and it would be like going to the orchestra, ready to hear your favorite composition of, I don't know, Beethoven or Bach or something. But when you go to the orchestra to hear Beethoven's fifth, which I have no idea what that sounds like. I'm sure he wrote something that was called that. Beethoven's fifth. Um, and you know what it sounds like when you go to these concerts, right? Am I, this is true, yes? And then you get to the concert and you're expecting the conductor to come out and to bring his baton and he turns and he, you know, he, he bows to the audience and then you expect the red curtain to rise and for the sound that you expect to be heard. Yes? Because you already know Beethoven's fifth. You've heard it. You're just here to pay to hear these fantastic musicians perform it. And let's assume for a second, I have no idea what Beethoven's fifth sounds like, but let's assume that it starts with bombastic, triumphant glory 
The equivalent would be this, the conductor coming out in front of the audience. And instead of holding a baton in his hand, he brings out a small little flute and he begins to play. And the melody is not loud, bombastic, and victorious. It's gentle, it's kind, it's haunting. And he continues to play. And after a half hour of playing, the, the curtain slowly lifts and the, the, uh, the what do you say, the, or- the orchestra begins to play and it's soft at first and it gains and all of a sudden you start to hear the themes of Beethoven's fifth that you weren't that that you were expecting from the beginning but they're played in a different way yes even for me this feels a little too emotional so does this do you understand this is what John the Baptist is doing or Jesus is doing with John the Baptist John the Baptist expects one thing and when Jesus The reality of Jesus comes. He's horrified and appalled. I should not be baptizing you, but you should be baptizing me. And what does Jesus say? Verse 15. But let it be so, for it is proper to fulfill all righteousness. Now, you know, do you know what I think this is referring to? Jesus is coming into the waters of baptism to reveal one important truth to us. That our identity is based in God's love. That our identity is based in God's love. What is water baptism? I think it's really two things. One of the things we talk a lot about in our circles, in our tradition, and the other we don't talk about nearly enough. Water baptism first, this is what we hear all the time. Water baptism is a public declaration that we identify with God. And Jesus, in humility and gentleness, is going into the waters of the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And he's identifying with humanity, like I too am one of you and I need this to fulfill all righteousness. But also, I'm identifying myself with you and with God. John expects Jesus to baptize with fire, and yet it is Jesus who goes into the waters to be baptized himself. He is saying, Jesus is, that he too is committed to the will of God. When we go into the waters of baptism, it's a public declaration of commitment that I will follow God, right? And this is in our tradition what we hear all the time talked about with baptism, a public declaration of our faith. But baptism is not less than this, but it is more. It is more than this. Baptism is not only a public declaration that we identify with God, but now hear the beauty of this. Baptism is a public declaration that God identifies with you. Yes? Baptism is a public declaration that God identifies with you. At the baptism of Jesus, we see this in a unique way. You know, I've done a lot of baptisms in my career. It's just part of what I do, you know? Um, but I've never had the heavens open up, doves descend in the form of the Spirit, and voices from heaven audibly say anything, you know? If I could do this, somehow it would be vocationally beneficial to me. (laughs) For I too would be this spectacle that people would come to see, yes? But I I do not have this power, and this has never happened for me. But Jesus... At his baptism, when he is baptized and the heavens open, I am very confident that part of why Jesus is saying that I must do this so that all righteousness can be fulfilled is so that those seeing the baptism could hear that God loves Jesus and he is pleased with him. 
And in baptism, it is a declaration, just as God declares over Jesus, it is a declaration over all of us that God is naming us his beloved child in whom he is well pleased. A naming. And names matter a lot, don't they? Names matter a lot. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, at the beginning of creation, when God has created all the animals and he's put Adam in the middle of this garden. He says, Adam, go and name all the animals. And what is this really doing? It's giving value to God's creation, right? Perhaps you played on a sports team or a part of a, any kind of group and your friend group gets so close that they give you a nickname. Usually this is a kind thing unless they're teasing you, which isn't so cool, but also powerful, right? They give you a nickname, right? They're giving you value or on the other evil side, they're trying to take value, yeah? Because names have power. We not only name people, we name things these days, right? We name our scandals, Deflategate, which is nothing more than potentially there was slight ball deflation. So I don't know why all, everybody gets so worked up about it. But I always just have to have one part in every sermon where I offend the majority of my audience. So that's my part for today. Um, Naming is a powerful dynamic. And at baptism, we are named. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And that naming is powerful. In the same way, I could go to my child and I could say, uh, Harrison, I want you to share toys with this other person. And if you don't, I will punish you. You know, there will be no screen time for a week. I could do this. It is within my rights as in power as a parent, you know? I can take away any number of things from my kid if I choose. I rarely do, but I could. Um, or I could go to Harrison and I said, Harrison, you know, you are a loving and kind boy. Share your toys. Do you see the difference? Of course you do. I won't even ask you to shake your head or nod your heads. Yeah. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This naming of God naming us his child gives us value, and it empowers us against the destructive forces and patterns that we all have grown to accept as part of life. And it tells us that we can break those patterns, that we don't have to live that way anymore. Those destructive patterns in the Christian world are called sin, right? That sin destroys. Did you know, in some traditions within the Christian faith, this goes back historically, but some traditions in the East, uh, Eastern Orthodox faith still have this as a part of their baptismal rite, that before the baptismal candidate would go into the waters to be baptized, that they would spit on the floor, <laughs> and then they would get in. And that spitting on the floor was supposed to symbolize the spitting uh, at the forces of darkness and evil of the devil, like, I do not belong to you anymore, I belong to God, and they would get in. We don't do this because it's gross. Yes? <laughs> um, baptism is a way that God declares over us we are his child and we declare to each other and to God that I belong to you. It is not something that doesn't change our reality. I am convinced it does in mysterious ways that I don't understand. It is not only a thing that we do to, do, to just make it possible to become members of a church, which is why a lot of people become members or because our parents tell us to. It is because it is an important spiritual passage in which we say, 
I belong to you, God. And God says right back, you belong to me. Um, every single Easter, we, we do baptism at church. And perhaps uh, you haven't been baptized. We would love to have a conversation with you about that. Um, and it's not too early to start. April 12th is, is Easter. And if you're interested in baptism um, or you'd like to just talk to me about it, it is not a timeshare pitch. It will not be... <laughs> It will not be something that you'll be forced into, but I would love to have a conversation if you're interested. But can you not see the powerful dynamic of baptism for your spiritual journey in your life? I hope you can. But the sad reality is, oh, and if you want to be baptized, we have the blue card and there's a section you can check, baptism. Just get it to somebody wearing a blue shirt and we will make sure to contact you. But the sad reality is that most of us fail constantly to claim the truth of our identity, of who we are. Most of us fail constantly to claim the truth of who we are. And why is this? We have all kinds of voices speaking into our life, telling us who we are all the time. And yet God proclaims, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. And so the choice of this text is clear. The choice of this text is clear. Will you believe the voice of God or will you believe the other voices, the voice of the accuser? Will you believe the voice of God or will you believe the other voices, the voice of the accuser, which can rear its head and speak to you in all kinds of different ways? Do you believe that your identity is rooted in God Or do you believe that your identity is rooted elsewhere? It is this elsewhere to which we now turn. And it is this elsewhere that Satan tries to derail the will and the life of Jesus, the will of God and the life of Jesus, by speaking the voice of lies into his life. After the Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism, it is the same Spirit in chapter 4, verse 1, that leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And when he is led into the wilderness to be tempted, at his very weakest moment, after 40 days of fasting and prayer, Jesus is hungry and alone in the middle of the wilderness, and it is this time that the voice of the accuser, Satan, comes into Jesus' life to tempt him and to accuse him and to deceive him with lies. And yet Jesus somehow is able to ignore and combat the voices of the accuser and to remain true to the voice of God. He did have an advantage in that he is God in the flesh, so that helps, right? But it would be a good idea to see how did he do it. We are all trying to answer the question, who am I? And it is the voice of the accuser that tries to wear down our defenses through that means. Satan comes to Jesus, chapter 4, verse 3, and he says, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are, right? God has already said, you are my beloved child. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus responds with scripture and says, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What he is saying is, I'm a beloved child of God. I have nothing to prove 
to you. And yet, the voice of the accuser, what does it say? You are what you do, right? You are what you do. If you make enough money, if you do, if you're good enough at playing your instrument, playing sports, whatever it is, you are what you do. But do notice that Jesus is declared God's beloved son before the Sermon on the Mount, before he heals anybody and raises them from the dead, the blind, the deaf, the lame, all of this, before he's done anything of the, any of the miraculous that we all know. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, for we are not what we do. Satan comes to Jesus again and says, if you are the son of God, jump from the highest point in the holy city. He takes him out of the wilderness into the city of Jerusalem where everybody is watching, puts him on the highest tower and says, if you are the son of God, jump down and have the angels protect you or maybe just hover, you know, do your God thing and not die and everybody will think you're awesome. Yeah? And Jesus says, nope, I'm not going to do that, right? He even, Satan even quotes scripture at him at this point, And Jesus says, it's not right to put God to the test. And what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to remake Jesus' identity. You are what others say you are, right? You are what others say you are. And Jesus says, nope, I'm a beloved child of God. Satan then takes him again out into the wilderness at a high mountainous point and shows him all the vast for miles and miles the world and says, if you but bow and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, I will not bow. I will worship God for I am a beloved child of God. And you see what he's saying? I am not what I have. (laughs) I am not what I have. I am not what others say that I am. I am not what I do. I am a beloved child of God. And at baptism, we're reminded of this. And it is no narrative uh, coincidence that Jesus' baptism is immediately followed by his temptation because narratively, what I believe Matthew is trying to theologically communicate to us is that our ability to resist temptation is rooted in our identity that we have with God. Yes? I want to take a moment and speak about what the voice of the accuser sounds like because it is so subtle, it is so clever. Remember from Genesis chapter 3, if you don't, I'll just tell you, where the serpent comes into the wilderness. Remember what it says about the serpent? He was more crafty and subtle, you know, than any of the other animals in the garden. He was more crafty and subtle, remember? Remember in Lord of the Rings when... um, they meet Strider or Aragorn, and the other hobbits are really skeptical of him. And one of the hobbits says to Frodo, I am sure that he must be bad. And, he, and Frodo says, I think one of the enemy would feel fair, or would look fair and feel fouler. Remember this? Because the voice of the accuser is subtle. And what does the voice of the accuser sound like? I want to read to you a section from a book that describes this so beautifully, and I'll comment on it a little bit. It's a book called Searching for Sunday by um, a woman who who died this past year, but who was a well-known blogger and extremely theologically astute, and I, I found her to be someone that I would regularly go to and always found my faith uplifted from. Her name was Rachel Held Evans. She wrote a book, Searching for Sunday, and she's talking about her 
her past, and it's kind of a, a book that's theological, but also a memoir of her experience in the church with all of its beauty and all of its ugliness, and the church has both. And um, she's talking about baptism, and I want you to hear what she says about the voices that we listen to, especially as it pertains to baptism. Our sins of hate, fear, greed, jealousy, lust, materialism, pride can at time take, at time Times take such distinct forms in our lives that we recognize them in the faces of the gargoyles and grotesques that guard our cathedral doors. We don't have any of those here. But have you ever wondered why those are at the cathedral doors, right? To remind us what it, we would be out here if we didn't have what is in here. Does this make sense? <laughs> These sins join in a chorus, you might even say, a legion of voices locked in an ongoing battle with God to lay claim over our identity, to convince us that we belong to them, that they have the right to name us. Where God calls us baptized and beloved, demons call us addict, slut, sinner, failure, fat, worthless, faker, screw up. Where God says, calls us his or her child, the demons beckon with rich, Powerful, pretty, important, religious, esteemed, accomplished, right. Do you see how the voice of the accuser uses both sides to his effect? It is no coincidence that when Satan tempted Jesus after his baptism, he began his entreaties with, if you are the son of God, for we all long for someone to tell us who we are. And the great struggle of the Christian life is to take God's name for us and to believe we are beloved of God and to believe that is enough, right? It's enough. Whether they come from within us or outside of us, these voices represent distinct personalities, the sins and systems that compete for our allegiance. These demons are as real as the competing identities that seek to possess us. Now listen to this. This sounds shocking and surprising, but hear it carefully. But rather than casting them out of our churches, we tend to invite them in. Where they tell us we'll be children of God when, do you hear this so clearly? We will be children of God when, this is the voice of the accuser. We beat addiction. We sign the doctrinal statement. We help in children's ministry. We could always use help there. We get our act together. We tithe. We play by the rules. We believe without doubt. We are married. We are straight. We are religious. We are good. Do you see how the church reinforces these things? Wherever you are this morning, you are accepted and beloved by God. The motivation for pursuing a life of holiness is not acceptance, but is gratitude. And it cannot be told by the clothes you are wearing or the way that you walk. It can only be told by your heart, and only you know it. But Christianity is not a religion of performance, but a religion of grace, that God accepts you. Even if you don't accept him and you are his beloved child and you have to go into his arms to experience that dynamic. For things can be true that if you do not live in the light of them, you will not experience the blessings of their truthfulness. Did you hear what I just said? Things can be true that you do not believe, and as a result, you do not align yourself with that truth, and you do not experience the blessings of those truth, that truth. I could have the most loving wife in the world, and I think I do, right? And hopefully all you think the same of your spouses. 
And yet, if I think she constantly is out to get me, she could love me as much as she wants, and I would always be like a Minnesota psychological test. Are there people in dark corners out to get you? Yes? We must live in line with the reality of God. And the first act of the Christian life is symbolized in baptism. And what is it? A renunciation, a challenge. That in baptism, the Christian stands naked and unashamed before all those other demons, all those other impulses, all those other temptations, sins and failures, all those empty sales pitches and screwy labels, and says simply, I am a beloved child of God, and I renounce anything or anyone that says otherwise. Isn't that beautiful? It is beautiful. Yeah. When we believe the voice of God, we are inoculated against all other voices. We are inoculated against all other voices. I probably won't use that word in my sermon very often, you know. Um, The Pharisees and the religious fundamentalists of even our own day, they try to get you to behave out of a fear of judgment. (laughs) Do this or else. And a lot of things can go in that blank of or else or else you can't belong or else you can't be here or else I won't care about you or else I won't accept you I won't love you or else you'll go to hell they even dare to speak on behalf of God at times right do this or else and God instead invites us into new life and invites you to be a part of it can you miss the new life in God of course you can you can choose to reject it Do not do so. God invites us into new life and proclaims over us that you are loved as the motivation for right behavior. And to be chosen by God does not mean that others are not chosen. For Christianity is not a zero-sum game. It's not as if there's a limited amount of God's love and if, you know, Billy takes some of it, then there's not as much for Sally, you know? So much of our life we play like it's a zero-sum game. If you take that, that's not fair, you know? I just made cookies yesterday. That's a zero-sum game. There's 20 of them. There's five people in our family. Everybody gets four. When they're gone, they're gone. If I eat five, that means someone else gets three. Yes? And my son Harrison knows exactly how many cookies there are. (laughs) If I'm honest, so do I. (laughs) I want my four. (laughs) The love of God is not a zero-sum game. The grace of God is for all. And do you know what is true about it? Everybody is invited. Everybody gets in it the same way. And everyone can meet the requirement. This morning we're going to transition to communion. But before we do, I want to draw your attention to this small little book that we have every single week out in our lobby.